0: going to continue on in our series called The Way, The Way of Jesus. Remember the earliest Christians were not known as Christians, they were known as followers of The Way, The Way of Salvation, The Way of this Jesus. It wasn't just a way of believing, but it was a way of living in light of the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. And we're going to start in Genesis and end up somewhere in the New Testament, Genesis chapter 12. Now in Genesis 1 and 2. God creates the world and declares it to be good. He creates human beings, declares them to be very good. Genesis 3, our earliest parents, disobeyed God and and went from an intimate relationship that's built on trust into um, their own autonomy and independence. They believed the lie of our adversary. And sin and death at that point entered the world. And the ripples of sin and death are kind of traced all the way through Genesis 3 through Genesis 11. In Genesis 12... We get the first, not really the first, uh, but one of the first inklings about what God is going to do to put the world back to the way He intended it. When He calls a man named Abram, we know him later as Father Abraham, who has many sons, of course, and daughters. The, chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. And then God makes this kind of epic promise to Abram. We've just, we just met him in a genealogy a couple verses ago. And so we don't know anything about him, but God makes this just major promise to him. He says, verse 2, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you I will curse. And all of the people on earth will be blessed how? Through you. So if you're Abram, there aren't many better promises than a, a tribe and land and God's blessing and favor resting over you to the, pl- to the point where you actually will bless all the earth. I mean, that's a pretty major deal. But I want you to notice that the blessings given to Abram weren't given for Abram alone. Would you agree? Right, that He was blessed, as we say, He was blessed in order to be a blessing. He was a funnel. He wasn't, he wasn't like a bowl where things would get go to Him and then they'd just sit there. The idea was the blessing would go to Abram, but He was blessed in order to bless others. Now we know that He's formed into a nation. Uh, his line is formed into a nation, Israel, and from Israel comes a Messiah who is a blessing to the whole world. But the idea, very early in the story, is that people are blessed... And in their blessing, they're blessed in order to bless other people. It's instrumental. It's not just for them. It's also for others. We're meant to be funnels and conduits of God's blessing, not just hoarders and keepers of it. Now, this theme, blessed to be a blessing, gets replayed all throughout the Scriptures, particularly as God instructs His people how to treat the poor and the needy in their midst. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 24. The second generation of Israelites are on the cusp of the promised land. Moses is reminding them of the law that God has given to them. And and one of the interesting aspects of God's law was how financial it was. There were deep financial implications about how you treated the poor in your midst because of the way that God had treated you when you were poor. So the idea, verse 19 of Deuteronomy 24 is this, Deuteronomy 24, 19. When you are harvesting in your field, and we all, we all know this, right? This is a scenario we're all familiar with. When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back and get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands." When you beat the olives from your trees, been there, done that, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. And, and can we agree, if you're the like vine grower, vine dresser, if you're if you're the harvester, if you're the person that's put in all the work for the crop, what this is saying is you get one shot at it. So the way you get olives, evidently, is you hit the tree. So I would put my best tree hitter. In the lineup, because I literally have one shot at those olives, right? Or, or same with, with if I'm dropping sheaves, well, I would make sure we didn't drop many. You know what I mean? My heart would be, particularly in an agricultural environment, would be, listen, as much, whatever is to be harvested, I want all of that. And so God said, no, 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 you don't understand. Leave the edges of your fields. It's called the law of gleaning. Discuss other places. When you're going after different kinds of crops, if you drop any, leave it there. If, if you hit the olives, or you hit the tree to beat the olives down onto the ground, uh, you get one shot. If you're, if you're harvesting grapes, you get one shot. Leave what remains for the foreigner, and the widow, and the orphan. And, and, and there's a sense, it's like, okay, well... I will because you tell me to. But there's a deeper reason that God does that. Verse 22. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That is why I command you to do this. Now, do you see the connection? When they were slaves, they were the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. And God rescued them. He was generous to them. He was gracious to them. And so now he says to his people, whatever you've received from me, now you pass it on to people who are like you were when you were in Egypt. Because think about it. When they... Now you know who was going to win that battle, right? I mean, if I wanted to... So... What was I talking about? Fatherless widow. Yeah, okay, when you were in Egypt, did you, Israel, did you get to enjoy a Sabbath day? No, you worked every single day because you were in slavery. Did you ever get to enjoy festivals or feasts? Nope. Did you live in a land that God has designed for you? No. Did you live in a land of abundance? No, you were slaves. You were fatherless. You were the widow. You were... The foreigner. And all throughout the book of Deuteronomy, God says to Israel, Hey, by the way, I rescued you because of a promise I made to a guy named Abram. I didn't rescue you because you were awesome. I didn't rescue you because you were more numerous or you were better at religion. I rescued you out of the sheer grace of who I am. So what I've given you, now you give to others. Because there are people who are just like you in your midst... And remember how generous I was with you. You be generous with those people. That's the idea. However, you've been blessed. That blessing isn't just for you. It's for the people in need around you. So you've been blessed to be a blessing. Now, and we could look at innumerable passages that teach the same idea over and over and over. But when we get to Jesus... Jesus teaches this concept differently. He teaches it that something really bad happens when you cease seeing blessing that way. Go to Matthew 13. Something really bad happens when you decide the blessings are just for you. Matthew 13, we'll start in verse. We're going to go three, high school. We're going to go verse three. And everyone else, verse three. Matthew 13. Now, one of us is in a good mood today. The rest of you are bundled up because you think this is cold. <laughs> this is perfect. This is, per- this is called springtime in the great state of Ohio. Matthew 13, verse 3. Jesus tells a parable. A farmer went to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seeds, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. He's going to describe four different soils, a very famous parable of his. Some fell along a path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, that's the third kind of soil, which grew up and choked the plants. So the image is, God is harvesting, he's he's planting seeds, seeds of the announcement of his kingdom, into different kind of people, and some of those people are hard-hearted, some of those people are shallow, some of those people initially say yes, but then they get choked. And then he says, lastly, still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop 160 or 30 times what was initially planted. So Jesus tells a picture, he tells a parable, about the different kinds of hearts that hear his message. Some of those hearts are initially receptive, but things happen to not make them fruitful. Some of those hearts aren't initially at all receptive, and so he describes them kind of like flattened, beaten down earth. Where birds can come and just take that seed away. But because he was beginning to speak in parables, his disciples didn't get it. So he explains it to him. Flip the page, at least if you're in my Bible. And go to verse 22. He begins to tell them what the parable means. And I want you to notice how he describes the thorns. Verse 22. The seed, remember, is the proclamation of of the kingdom. His announcement about what God is doing in and through his ministry. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth do what? Choke it, making it unfruitful. Now, the word for worry here, the worries of this life, it's a really interesting Greek word. The word means to be scattered or divided. So the image is of somebody who's present in one place, but their heart and mind is somewhere else. Do you know what this feels like? You're you're sitting at work, but you're replaying a conversation that you had the other day. You're literally not fully there. You're scattered. You're, You're at home, but you're anticipating a really rough day at work tomorrow or at school tomorrow, and so you're... You're thinking about that. You might be physically in one place, but emotionally and mentally, you're someplace else. That's what worry is. To worry means to be scattered. You're physically present, but your heart and your mind are somewhere else. Do we know this feeling? We're either stewing on something in the past or anticipating something in the future, but we're not fully here. So the worries of this life or anything, right? You name it. The the amount of worry and concern that sit in this room is pretty immense. But notice, it's not just the worries of this life that Jesus speaks of that chokes the fruitfulness of the work of God in us, but it's combined with the deceitfulness of wealth. Now, do you think those two things are related? The worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth. Do you think those are related? Absolutely they're related. Because wealth promises to eliminate worry. It's deceitful because we believe the lie that if we just had more, I'd be safer, more comfortable, and have more opportunity. See, the deceit of wealth is that it promises to alleviate worry when in actuality it only increases it. See, that's when so when Jesus talks about the worries of this life, well, it's the worries of this life that create an environment for us to trust wealth, which is, well, wealth will solve the problem. If I just had, I mean, don't wouldn't we all agree? Someone just handed us a check for twenty thousand dollars right now, that'd be awesome, and we'd be better off, we'd be safer, we'd be happier. But the, the deceitfulness of wealth is evidenced by the fact that. Six weeks from now, if we made the same offer, we'd say the same thing. And then six weeks after that, someone made the same offer, we'd say the same thing. And there would never come a point where we'd say, no, no, I've got plenty. I've got enough. See, the worries of this life, our scatteredness, cause us to look to wealth, but wealth, Jesus says, is deceitful. It promises what it cannot deliver. It promises the alleviation of worry, but instead it contributes to it. I mean, for instance, when I... (laughs) uh, Several years ago, we first started having kids. Uh, I drove this junky expedition, Ford Exposition. I said it was a Chevy Suburban last last service. I don't know why. It was really a Ford Exposition. (laughs) I lied blatantly to those people, and it wasn't intentional, but... And to some people, like in Ohio, that matters. If it's a Ford or a Chevy, okay? So, but it was a Ford. And this thing was given to us like secondhand. I mean, it, it, it smelled. It was broken. It was nappy. Kids could have thrown up in the thing. And it, you wouldn't have even noticed. I mean, it was, this thing was awful. But it was free. And so we loved it. Through a series of ridiculously amazing God circumstances, we were able to get a brand new minivan. Now, there's no guy on this planet that wants to talk about a cool minivan story, okay? <laughs> but they do come in handy. And so God arranged for us to get a brand new minivan at a ridiculously like low cost. We would never have been able to afford it otherwise. And this minivan had leather seats. This minivan had a fold-down DVD player. This minivan, this minivan, in other words, was nice. Now, when my children sat in my truck and they spilled something, did I care? No, it added to the character. If somebody opened their car door next to mine with a little too much vigor and dinged my truck, did I care? No way! If someone could have stolen it and I would have been thrilled. I just did not care. But then we got the van, and the van was nice. And I saw myself starting to yell at my children when they ate in the van get your feet off the leather seats in the van. And all of a sudden, it cared when there was a scratch on the van. And, and, and here's, what I, here's what I began to discover. Instead of the nicer thing alleviating worry, it created it because I wanted to keep it so nice. So I was willing to sacrifice relationship with my kids for the sake of a van that had the exact same function as the truck did. So did I own the truck? Yeah. Did I own the van? Van owned me. See, there is a process you and I go through called mining. It's when we say that something is mine. Whenever you use that word, mystical bonds form between you and that. Am I right? How many of you were ever dumb enough to recarpet your house when you had children? You know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> we form these mystical bonds with our stuff the minute we say, It's mine. As long as we're property managers, I'm, I'm okay. Right? It's a rental. But the minute I say, I'm an owner and this is mine, worry doesn't decrease, it increases. I mean, if we took a poll, how many of you are making more now than you were 20 years ago? We'd, a lot of us would say, well, yeah. And has our anxiety lessened proportionately? No. The deceitfulness of wealth is the promise that more makes us safer. More makes us more comfortable. More gives us opportunity. And in the short term, it might. But the deceitfulness shows itself When six weeks or six months after the fact, we feel the same thing. And so Jesus says, if you want to know what chokes the work of God in people, being scattered in worry and trusting in wealth to solve it, that chokes the word of God in us. And could there be any more appropriate picture for us, Orange County? I don't think so. And so when Jesus talks about wealth and money and stuff, he doesn't say wealth and money and stuff is bad. He just says wealth and money and stuff, if it's not passed along, chokes. The word literally means strangles the work of God in people. And so it's not surprising. Jesus preached such a revolutionary message that when you start looking at the early church, there were financial implications. Go to Acts chapter 2. Of all the things that you could say about the early church, man, they had kick in worship. I mean, great preaching. Holy cow, the apostles were preaching. Of all the things you could say, they had great small groups. Of all the things you could say about the early church, it's just interesting a theme that keeps coming up. Acts 2, verse 42. Very familiar passage to us. Acts 2, 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together, and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions and gave to anyone who had need. Flip over to chapter 4. I mean, of all the ways to describe the early church. Verse 32 of chapter 4. All the believers... Sorry, verse 32, chapter 4. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was there, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. What was the evidence that God's grace was among them? There was no one in need. I mean, of all the things you could say about the way of Jesus, what gets highlighted was the way of generosity and sharing. And, and it wasn't like there was an overabundance of material resources back then. I mean, later in the book of Acts, somebody prophesies a famine that's going to hit this church. And so Paul, in his letters, is going out raising money for the church in Jerusalem, I mean, and so there's the sense that, well, what is the way of Jesus? Well, the way of Jesus is being blessed, and then with that blessing, be a blessing to others. Why? Well, that's what God's done to us. We were once slaves. We were once orphaned and fatherless and foreigners in this world. I mean, we were once in need of rescuing and God rescued. And so when Jesus talks about this, one of the illustrations He uses is that, listen, if you don't get this right... The work of God can be strangled in you. And as a positive example, you look at the early church. And the work of God was so powerfully evident. Well, how do we know? Well, there was healings and there were miracles and there were people coming to Jesus. But there, were, there was no one in need. It also got mentioned on that list. Go to 1 Timothy. I really don't like this passage. I don't like it at all. Verse 17. I'm sorry, six. Sir, you're not allowed to talk to me in the middle of the message. This is totally a monologue, because it's all it's the best way people learn. Studies have shown the best way people learn is they get talked to not really. Thank you for clarifying. First Timothy six, are you there already? Okay. Verse 17. Paul writes, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for enjoyment. Now, when you hear the phrase, people who are rich in this present world, how many of you think of somebody else? (laughs) I do. Right I, I think of the people in... Where's a where's rich spot around here? Your, I live in your Belinda, all right? That's not, we're not going to do that one. What? Beverly Hills, Beverly Hill. excellent Beverly Hills. Newport Beach, right? So when I think of rich people, I think of people somewhere else. The problem is when the rest of the world thinks of rich people, who do they think of? Us. Now I'm going to throw some statistics up. Some of you have heard these. And they're not intended to provoke guilt. Guilt is unhelpful. They're intended to provoke perspective. So that when we hear the rest of this passage, we're not thinking of somebody else. Fire up the iPad. The top 20% of the world's population consumes 86% of the world's goods. 93% of the world's population doesn't own a car. So if you drove here, welcome to the top 7%. The total income of American churchgoers is $5.2 trillion. It would take just a little over 1% of the total income of American Christians to lift the poorest 1 billion people out of extreme poverty. American Christians who make up 5% of the church worldwide control roughly 50% of global Christian wealth. United States constitutes 6% of the world's population but consumes between 40 and 50% of its resources. 40% of the world lacks basic sanitation. 1 billion people don't have clean drinking water. 800 million people will not eat today. 300 million of them will be children. Americans spend more annually on trash bags than half the world does on all of its goods. Two billion people in the world have no electricity. One percent of people in the world own a computer. One percent of people in the world have a college education. Now, these were some of these are from 2006 from the World Bank. The estimate was basic education for all would cost six billion. Water and sanitation for all would cost nine billion. Basic health and nutrition for all would cost thirteen billion. How many is that total? Justy Bear, twenty-eight. You didn't remember? Thirteen, nine, and six. How many is that? What? 28? The annual expenditure for cosmetics in the United States is eight billion. The annual expenditure for ice cream in the United States is 20 billion. Now, first of all, I have to confess that a lot of that 20 billion is mine. Okay. But secondly, You can do anything with stats, right? But just for a second, pretend that that's that's the world we live in. When people talk about voting biblical values, where's this one? We are the richest people who have ever walked the face of the earth. And the fact that we don't feel rich... Shows how deceitful and demonic our world really is. If your income is over 25 grand a year, you are wealthier, it is estimated than 90% of the world's population. And if you make over 50 grand, you make over 99% of the world's population. Now, point of the exercise: is it guilt? No, I hope hope there's some holy conviction in it. But the point is perspective. Now, are there people who have genuine and deep and horrible needs that sit right in our midst? Absolutely. That is nothing against the needs that we need to meet in Orange County, in Fullerton, in this church. Nothing about that. But for the rest of us who sit and believe That if we just had 50 more thousand dollars, we would be much better off. It's a bit of perspective. So that Jesus cannot... when, When Paul writes this and says, command those who are rich in the present world, we are not off the hook in thinking about anybody else at this point. We have met the rich and it is us. But notice what he says. He says, command them not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth. Is having stuff wrong? No. Nope. Paul earlier in this chapter says, it's the love of money that's the root of evil. But it's the mining of money that's the issue. Command them not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so what? Uncertain. And can we all say amen to that? But put their hope in God, who richly provides us. Notice he says, command those who are rich, not to put their hope in wealth, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything. Now how much of anything does that leave out? That would be zero. Because I don't know about you, but I want to say, listen, that's my olive tree. I did the work. That's my field. I did the work. Jesus isn't showing up and taking my test tomorrow. Right? He's not showing up to a job I hate just to provide for his family. And then there's this horrible passage in Deuteronomy we didn't have time to look at that says, well, who even gives you the ability to have wealth to begin with? Dang it. <laughs> so what's, what's Paul say? Command them to do Good. To be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. Does that just mean giving to church? No! There's no cap on generosity, it's a way of life. In this way they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so they may take hold of what? Of the life that is really life. See, brothers and sisters, the invitation isn't some guilt ridden, I got to buy God off so I can enjoy the rest of my stuff. That's not the invitation. The invitation is the same invitation that was given to Abram. You've been blessed. Now bless others. And what you will see happen is that the amount of stuff that owns you decreases and the amount of joy you have for life increases. This is about grabbing hold of the life that's really life. Not the life that Wall Street imagines for us. Not the life that Hollywood promotes to us. And it is not the life that says the purpose of life is to make money, be famous, or have stuff. Whatever you've received from God, give that away. Grace, forgiveness, love, mercy, hope, blessing. It's the same invitation in every area of your life. If you've been forgiven, forgive others. You've been loved, love others. You've been comforted, comfort others. Out of the overflow of what God has done in you. And if you're unwilling to do that, the work of God might be strangled in your life. That's the warning that goes with the promise. And so brothers and sisters, this has less to do about the church needing your money. Do you understand this? This is not a, hey, we need to raise money thing. This is a, Jesus talks about money more than any other subject outside of the kingdom of God. This is a fundamental aspect of our discipleship. And so he invites us to stop mining and instead to say, okay, if I'm a property manager, not an owner, what do you want me to do? So, would you close your eyes for just a moment before we start baptisms? We just want to spend a a moment in reflection. And and if you're particularly courageous this morning, what is it that you're mining? Is it an account balance, or a, a car, or embarrassingly, a minivan? What are you mining? And what would it look like to approach that area with open hands instead of closed fists? What would it look like to actually believe that God gives us everything for our enjoyment and He's not stingy? What would it look like to begin to enter into the consumerism of this season with a totally different posture of your heart? And so, Lord Jesus, where there is conviction needed, would you convict us? Where there is perspective needed, would you give us perspective? But, God, I pray, I pray for this church that the joy of our salvation would be so compelling that there is nothing we would rather do than to share. And I know that sounds so crazy, but this was the early church, Lord. They just couldn't help it. And so would you do that work in us? And God, we believe the ultimate display of your generosity was in the giving of your Son and making a way for us to be right. And so as we turn our eyes to baptism, we just can't think of a better picture of your generosity than turning dead things into live things, turning darkness into light. And so Jesus, we celebrate in all ways. Amen.